morning to you, Thursday morning, Keith Finnegan with you until 12 midday. Why are there under 65s in nursing homes? That is set to end, so says the local minister. Today also we're getting Galway talking, Laura Condren joins us there. We'll look at finance, so you can get your queries and questions in today, McCarthy, if you want to on 091-770-077. Today also we're looking at the whole Delta virus, uh, so we are today. And uh, also we're looking at the National Eating Disorder and the Recovery Centre there. And McKeown joins us, Dave O'Connell joins us with the Iconic uh, Tribune headlines. We look at the new ambassador, the USA ambassador to Ireland and her credentials there. We're talking about the tune Tidy Towns and we're joined by Michael Waldron and Gordon Darcy and much more between now and 12 midday. It is indeed a Thursday morning. A very good morning to you. Now, a very good morning to you. Welcome in to today's programme. It's quite staggering indeed, and the Ombudsman, Peter Tyndall, is speaking about this as well, and that there are quite a large number of under 60s and under 65s, uh, and they're being uh, discharged from hospital but into nursing home settings. Now, to be honest, I did witness it myself in the, in the last couple of months that in the nursing homes that I would be visiting, since I could visit um, in the last couple of weeks, say, and months, uh, I did notice quite a few young people uh, within the infrastructure itself. Um, but they've nowhere else to go. Minister Anne Rabbit is trying to deal with this and she joins me on the line today. Minister, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith, and good morning to your listeners. And I did see a, a, certainly a man that I know um, that I went to school with and he's about a year younger than me and he's in a facility uh, that I was visiting and I was just wondering why he was there. But this is all about bed capacity and COVID bed capacity and, again, a step-down facility that's needed. Absolutely, Keith. And I suppose this is a practice that just didn't evolve because of COVID or anything else. It was a practice that has been there a long number of years because you don't get to have an, um, over 1,300 people under 65 in a nursing home without it actually having happened over a, a period of time. And the reason you've clearly identified was there is no alternative options because, to be honest with you, acute beds are so expensive. And if a person doesn't need to be in an acute bed, um, we need that bed free. So the alternative then was, and they can't be get the support to be supported in the community, um, and they don't get enough home support hours, perhaps, or perhaps the house isn't, um, the, the, the accommodation within the house couldn't be done in time to assist with that transitional care. And the, the option then would have been to, to and be very grateful of getting the support in, in, a, in, a, in a nursing home. Um, but we have to review that completely because the Ombudsman has been incredibly critical of it uh, and because we don't have alternatives and that's what I'm working on to try and find alternatives. And it's important also as well to say, Keith, in some cases, a nursing home perhaps for that younger person is the best match, but perhaps also not in all cases. We have to look at the will and preference of the individual. But what are the alternatives? If, if the family can't facilitate them at home or the facilities at home can't facilitate them, uh, what What is the alternative there? Um, do we have any indications what the numbers are like? Are we talking about a small number of people here in the, say, in the CHO2 area? In CHO2, would you believe it, Keith, we're looking at approximately 134 um, people. Um, 134 under 60? Under 65, yes, Keith. Under 65, forgive me. I'm, yeah, under yeah, 134, which, which is a large number. We're in the top... 50% of the country um, that have such a large number. Um, that, in, that's in a, a lot, so it is. It is a lot, Keith. It is, it, is, it is a lot. And so, I take, so I take it, sorry to go to, I take it then that the HSE are paying for this respite care 
uh, for the duration of the stay. So there's a cost to the HSE. Whilst it's cheaper than a hospital bed and it's ringing up a hospital bed, uh, it's still quite an expensive um, facility at 134 people in private nursing homes. It is. And to be honest with you now, there's a breakdown there as well because there's some in private and there's some within their own HSE composition as well. Like we've 28 people out of that 134 within the HSE nursing home situation as well. It's not that everybody is just gone private. The HSE are are non-complicit themselves. Okay, in this. Okay. But I mean, when you look at St. Brendan's, and we're led to believe this between 30 and 40 beds free, uh, 36 beds, I think, free in St. Brendan's in Loch Ray, surely that could be used perhaps as a step down respite facility uh, for the people in question. Yeah, and what we need to be is we need to be ambitious for the people as well in question, Keith, as well. And I think we can't just say one size fits all, but we do need to look at triaging people properly and actually working with their families to see actually what is the the condition, what actually is the best suited requirement. What is the definition of triaging, can I ask you, Minister? It's that transitional space, actually. Um, so is that if you're in the acute setting, that perhaps you could actually move to a transitional care space where actually you can be triaged to see actually what is your proper needs and look at your home setting, what home support could be put in place, what um, measures need to be put in place in relation to accommodation in your own house to, to keep you in your own house or to look at see actually what is available in, in the community. So like we, we, we need to start looking at all options because... That's what families are demanding from us, Keith. So, it might, it, and we are spending it, it get, the money. The thing is, we are spending the money. We are spending the money in acute settings. Like it's it's an awful thing to say. And it's, a, it's a horrific indictment. But we we sometimes people spending over fourteen, fifteen months in an acute setting in, in a hospital um, before they actually even find their way um, to a nursing home because they can't find that that care pathway for them. I was only talking. To a, a senior lady last week in relation to a patient in, in the Midlands who had been four years, Keith, in an acute bed. Wow. Waiting to find a transitional you're, pathway. You're, you're institutionalised at that stage. 14 to 15 months is long enough. I mean, if you spend a couple four of weeks years. in hospital, it's an awful long time. Can I go back to, I mean, if, if, if I present, please God, not too soon, in the ED department on triage, so they're looking at me and they're looking at what needs to be done urgently. So it's the same process as what you're saying then. So there needs to be some kind of a holding area for the people. So they're out of the acute setting, they're given a quality of life, but they're not in the, they're not in the older person's home or the older person's residential unit. Uh, so it's kind of finding that neutral ground then. That's exactly it, Keith, and that's what we need to do. And we need to have that transitional space where we give the clinicians the opportunity to actually find the right match. We follow the funding with the person and we also work with the person and listen to what the family needs and what's available within the home or within that community. So it's, as I said at the beginning, not one size will fit all. And as I said, also in certain situations, a nursing home is perhaps the best fit. Okay, so we're not condemning nursing homes by any manner or means. And I'm not either because we need them. But I mean, but to see somebody, to see somebody my age and to see somebody younger who has got to be in a residential facility because of the care and the care needs that they have, which is quite intensive. um, And but to see them sitting there in a room with people with dementia and older people up to 100 years of age in the same room as them and they're 59, 60, it's, 
it's just not good for their mental state. It's not the appropriate setting, absolutely. And that's what we have to look at. We have to put it from a disability point of view. We have to put the person at the centre. It has to be a rights-based and what is right for the person and what's right for the family. And we actually, as I say already, the funding is there, but we need to um, um, channel the funding in a particular way that we meet the needs of the person. And in the past, perhaps the funding wasn't there, or in the past, we don't have, and we don't, this minute as I speak to you, we don't have that triage system. And that is something I am working along with my colleagues within the HSE, but also colleagues here within the department, Minister Donnelly and Minister Butler. The three of us are working together on this to find a triage system so as we can support um, these young people under 65 to find what is the best way of supporting them in the community. You see, if you take the private sector currently in Galway, take the Bon Secours, and we spoke to Jerry Burke last week, Chief Executive of the Bon Secours Galway, and if you take the Galway Clinic as well, they're fairly well at full capacity as well, so they are currently. So a private setting like that is not going to maybe be available to you. It will be cheaper, certainly, than a hospital setting in a public hospital in an acute setting. Um, But it really is, perhaps there's a business model there that somebody could look at. We need something very bespoke, Keith, you know what I mean? And when we talk about, uh, I'm looking at the neurostrategy as well, and when we talk about the neurostrategy, we always talk about Dublin, the NRH and Piedmont, but we also, the neurostrategy, when we we speak about it, needs to come to the Cork and the Galways, because we need to be able to do that transitional care in neuro as well, while people are waiting... Neuro as in brain damage, strokes and that. Absolutely, uh, aneurysms. Um, and any acquired brain injury, that we need to have a place where you're not just in, you're part of the rehabilitative care, it's great to go to the NRH, but you also need to come back to that sort of community setting where you get that continuous support as you're being adjusted back into the community or back home. Okay, and I mean, so much has been spent from a health budget point of view. I'd say between the three of you, you must have the largest budget within the whole of the uh, that that and, and social protection. Um but I mean, where can this money come from? Where can this be drawn from? But you're saying on one side, the HSE are paying for it in a private facility for step mm-hmm. down for people. So you're saying just divert that into a... Into we need a, to repurpose it. We yeah, need to, okay. to, to, to divert it. And I'm not saying divert it for the whole 134 or anything else like that, Keith. But we need to start this pathway. At the moment, uh, I'm in the last budget that I just did, 2021, I, I left a line in the budget for... Um, moving people out of nursing homes. Now, it was only a small line within the budget. It was two in each CHO to see actually what the process is like, how complicated it is, what funding needs to be put in place. But there is also people at this moment in time, as I speak to you around the country, 44 people under 65 in acute settings that have nowhere to go to. Wow, 44. 44, Keith. 44. And, and if we're listening to the Ombudsman and we're being very serious about taking it on board, which it is a program, it's a priority within government, it's a priority for myself, we need to be serious about trying to find that pathway because the money is already being spent. That's what we're spending serious money in the hospital settings. We're not giving any major interventions other than providing a bed. So we need to find um, that triage system where our, that transitional space in the community. When you look at that on an annual, uh, on a weekly basis, that's a savage amount of money, so it is. Absolutely, Keith. And, and a thousand euro a bed really. a night, that's 44,000 a night, multiply that by seven. You know, you're up, at, you're up at a couple of hundred thousand there, and then you multiply that by 52. Like it, it really and truly is. But look, at, there is no other option. There is no other option. Can I ask you, for let you go, just in relation to 
Uh, and I've kind of switched off from a programme point of view. I haven't discussed COVID at all this week because I think people need a break from it. Uh, but this whole Delta uh, version of the of COVID that we have currently uh, in the country, is it going to slow down the reopening in early July next week indeed uh, of the other facilities that people are holding their breath for? I certainly would hope not, Keith. um, Because when we look at the Delta variant, and yes, we have to be very conscious of it, but we also have to look at what was always determined in the past. And everything that determined in the past was our capacity within the hospitals. And at the moment, thank God, we have only 15 people in an acute setting. While our numbers have stabilised and are probably going to start rising with more of the Delta variant being here, we also have to look at those hospital numbers and the hospital numbers are dropping all of the time, Keith. We also have to look at 4 million million, um, vaccinations have been... Uh, have taken place. So, so those four million, if it's only two million in the population that's got the, the two doses, surely that has to lift any threat. Absolutely. And I would be very positive. I would have ex- my express wishes. Um, I, I've let it be known that we need to continue with the plan that is laid out. Um, for all the reasons, a lot of the dynamics have changed in the last six months with a successful rollout of a vaccination program, very successful rollout of the vaccination program, but also with the point of view that we also see that um, that what we that it is not impacting the Delta variant its arrival here on hospital numbers, and that was always determined a run on capacity in the hospitals, and that's where we have to be at. So you would be confident that. Reopening will continue at the pace that it's at currently. Yes, that would be my expressed wish. But that's, I'm not a cabinet, so they will be making that decision on the advice that Neffet will feed in. And that has always been the process um, since the very start of COVID. But there will be a decision made at it. And it will be based on what is right um, socially and economically, but also on the fact of the science. And at the moment, the science is telling us vaccination is working, hospital numbers are down. Uh, and um, we we can continue. I would hope we could continue on steam with our path of reopening as we've done so far. Okay, we we won't hold you to it. Uh, but I was going to say you, you may not be a cabinet, but you're sitting. I was going to say you're sitting in Hawkins House, but that's been levelled. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing left of Hawkins House, but you're sitting in the department, indeed, uh, where I mean you would have access to information. So we'll take the positive one uh, from there, Minister Anne Rabbit. Thank you for joining us uh, today on the program. Uh, your thoughts and comments, please. And have you been affected or have you a loved one under 60, 65 years of age uh, in a nursing home facility? What do you think? I mean, and, and how could that be avoided where possible? I do think the repurposing that Anne Rabbit is talking about is something that has to be taken seriously. Earlier in the week, we spoke to Dr. Carl Bowman, indeed, of Coke Galway in relation to uh, the Women's Aid uh, publication, where it showed that uh, the increase, indeed, in domestic violence uh, during COVID was quite, quite frightening. I want to go, though, to um, Laura Condren, who joins me on uh, the line. Laura is uh, Director of Development and Therapist uh, with Let's Get Galway Talking. And she joins me on the line because they've seen an increase, indeed, in people coming to them as well. Laura, good morning to you. Morning, Keith. Good. Thanks for joining us uh, today uh, in relation to this. Again, let's get Galway talking is there for people, but you've seen an increase as well in this uh, regard when it comes to domestic violence and people wanting to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like generally 70% of people engaging the service over the past year have has named the pandemic um, as exacerbating 
their emotional distress. Um, but particularly for people experiencing domestic abuse, it's really exacerbated the isolation and fear um, for those women and men. Uh, you know, people who, I suppose, would have been scaffolded by their relationships with family and friends, um, who would have been a source of support and refuge for them, are now you know, isolated from them. And it's been particularly distressing for those who've been forced to work from home. That perhaps has meant that they're spending all day really with an abusive partner um, and and they have even less opportunity to protect themselves. And what advice can you give them if they call you, uh, Laura, um, from a, let's get called a talking point of view, what type of advice can you give them? Well, uh, safety is our priority. Um, You know, when we moved the service online last March, Keith, we were really extremely concerned about those clients who were living with domestic abuse and um, we knew we needed to continue our support to them um, so we worked individually each with each of them to kind of safety plan so they could attend appointments safely many felt they couldn't have their appointments online or by phone you know their partner was monitoring their phone and all their online activity and um, so while we've had a reduced capacity for face face to face appointments and um, you know we, we do prioritize those experiencing domestic abuse um, uh, and what percentage yeah. increase have you seen Laura can I ask um, it's hard to quantify um, because what happens is that some people only identify um, when they get into the counselling relationship that they are being abused in the relationship. Um, part of an abuser's tactics is often gaslighting. So they might manipulate um, the victim into doubting the reality of the situation. You know, say, this never happened. You what know, what or, do you mean by gaslighting? Did you say gaslighting? Gaslighting, yes. What um, in the name of God so, is gaslighting? Please. <laughs> So, so basically, uh, you know, the refuser, the, the abuser may refuse to admit or acknowledge the abuse uh, shortly afterwards. And, and because the impact of, dom- of domestic abuse on a person's mental health and their sense of self, um, you know, it, you know, they often doubt the reality of the situation. Uh, they've been manipulated by by the abuser. Into, so, the, you know, the person who's been abused, the person who's been abused, is doubting that they are being abused and thinks that's in their head. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, you know their sense of autonomy uh, and their control over their own life has been taken away, you know, so, um, and their sense of self-worth has often been worn down by the abuse. Um, so it does happen that, you know, we have people who start in in counselling with us and it's only after um, they've been in that therapeutic relationship for quite a while um, and, you know, we're, we've been addressing the, the mental health impacts um, and the impact on their self-worth that they identify that the abuse there is abuse there, um, you know. Really and truly, what one human being does to another human being, we have an awful lot to answer for. We do. Absolutely. Absolutely. In an ideal world, we wouldn't be talking about this. No, um, but... um, There is no ideal world out there. There is no ideal world. And the positive thing is that people are coming forward you know, and there is greater awareness out there. Um, you know, the, the coverage uh, that the Women's Aid report over the past few days um, is a good thing, you know. Um, you know, it highlights and, you know, it, it develops awareness um, for all of us um, that this is happening. Um, um, just if they want to get further details on Let's Get Goldway Talking, what can they do there? Okay, well, um, we're, we're contactable um, by phone, so 0818714001. Um, if they want to look at our website, it's letsgettalking.ie. If it's easier to email, uh, it's goalway at letsgettalking.ie. And I just want to say as well, Keith, um, you know, often people who are in um, a domestic abuse situation 
Um, they're also being economically abused, so they might not have access to finances to pay for food, never mind therapy. Um, so I just wanted to put it out there that you know we do have a non-set fee service, so cost um, will not be a barrier to accessing the service. Even a non-which service? A non-set fee service. A non-set. Um, You've all these posh words done. Let's get going. We're talking. <laughs> What's a non-set fee? What does that mean? So when we see somebody for an initial appointment, um, you know, as well as getting to know them um, in order to help us refer them to the right person in the service for them, we will um, touch them around what's affordable for them. Um, so regardless of their financial circumstances um, and the income that they have access to, um, you know, we'll just agree a fee based on, on what they can afford. All right, if the, you want to get further details, um, you can just go to letsgetgoldwithtalking.ie. That's letsgetgoldwithtalking.ie for all the posh words uh, from there. How quickly, somebody wants to know, can you be seen uh, from there, Laura? Once they make contact with you, how quickly can they be spoken to? Oh, we do have a waiting list, but we do prioritise um, those most in need. Um, so if, if, if it is urgent, do say it at reception um, and we'll prioritise you for an initial appointment. Okay, so is it just go to the website or is there a telephone number uh, briefly that they can call? Yeah, it's letsgettalking.ie or 0818-714-001. is the number for Listen, we'll put that up online as well, but thank you for joining us. Keep in contact, Laura Condren joining us with all our posh words there and gaslighting and all that goes with it. Thank you indeed for joining us today on the programme. Let's go to Dave McCarthy, who joins me on the line in relation to finance today. Dave, good morning to you. Thanks indeed for joining us today. Um, again, we have people looking because they've got money at making investments and they're looking at making an investment in a life assurance property fund. And do you think it's a good idea? Is it a good idea, Dave? Um, it depends on the fund. A number of these are exposed to Irish property. Some of them are exposed to overseas property. Depends on the one that you pick. Um, I would probably say at the moment, I wouldn't think it's such a great idea. Um, commercial property, which is what these funds are exposed to, is kind of going through a bit of a, how will I put it, a revision in terms of that particular market. So I would just say probably stay clear for the present time. Okay, and is it easy for somebody to make an investment in a life assurance property fund like that? Um, or yeah, do they have to get advice? To, you just can't rock up like and get involved, can you? You have to get advice on it. Well, you can you can if you want, but if you don't get advice, then you may not know what exactly you're getting into. Um, they're available through all of the main life companies. Um, it's a unit-linked fund, so you can go directly to one of the companies uh, that offer these. And <clears> that's... <throat> Of course, like everything else. I'm, I'm losing you, Dave. Can you go back to where you were, if you don't mind? I'm just losing you there slightly. Right. Can you hear me now, Kate? I can hear you perfectly, yeah. You were saying that yeah. they need it, to get advice. It may not be just the, yeah, it may not be the wisest thing to do if you don't get advice and you don't know what you're getting into. So I'd just be careful without without doing not doing something like that without some proper advice. Okay, now we've also been looking at uh, recent data about housing becoming unaffordable and suggesting that we need a radical rethink towards uh, renting, which means uh, legislation on rents and facilities and leases and all of that. I spoke to somebody yesterday and um, for them to build a house, uh, and it wouldn't be the, the, the largest house in the world with the cost of, uh, the way the cost of building has gone, uh, on a site that they would own, they could be looking at over 350000 yeah, I mean, I, look, I, we're seeing a, a lot of data coming out uh, in, in the last 12 months 
ensuring the number of houses that would be needed to facilitate those who are looking for homes in the years to come. And we're seeing huge problems with, uh, as you said, the cost of building. But you know what? I'm really beginning to get get into my head that we and the politicians should be looking at an area which I think they will consider controversial and maybe may not want to go is that maybe we should stop thinking about people owning their own, own homes and put in place a European model like this is going to take years to, for it to happen if they go down that road for example you know as we know in Europe large uh, properties that are rented out you know in terms of apartment blocks they're owned by institutions and these these um, buildings all have facilities for children. They all have facilities uh, for social social areas. It's not just like building a block of apartments here where we don't seem to put in place all the necessary infrastructure. And they also would have in place leases and long-term protection for people who want to rent. So somebody listening to me, me saying this would say, well, sure, you know, how could that be viable when you look at where rents are at the moment? Rents at the, the rental market at the moment is a private um, market which is driven by obviously supply and demand but it's also driven by private landlords and it's also driven by the fact that we don't have in place long term letting where somebody might be able to go in and lease a, a property 20, for 20, 30 years for the rest of their life and have a kind of a control on the rent that you're paying. That's the European model. But, you know, maybe it's just time we wake up and realise that the idea and the ambition for us all to want to own our own home may not be such the such a wise thing for a lot of people out there. Yeah. But until such time as the government, you know, kind of take a radical relook at this. And, you know, the other side of it is there shouldn't really be private landlords uh, having a small number of houses in the rental market, as in Europe. You don't, you don't really have that either. Um, but if you can't provide people with a proper structure and a proper ambition in terms of cost to be able to buy a house, well, maybe you look at it another way. And yeah. that is that you, you rent a property for the rest of your life. Well, then, yeah, why, why not? Why, why do you have to own the bricks and mortar to go with it? I see in today's Irish Independent where the government are uh, cooking up a scheme indeed to get elderly people out of their homes into smaller homes uh, to free it up for, for the younger families and the younger people coming up along the way. Again, I can't see it happening in Ireland. Uh, that's, I don't know, I haven't seen that report, but from what you've just mentioned there, I really can't see how that is going to work, and I can't really see how uh, people could be encouraged to, to go that route. But, you know, that's only putting putting a plaster in a broken leg, in my opinion. This is a huge problem, and I think it re- needs a radical rethink. And for, for what I'm suggesting to happen, which is obviously following the European model, as I just mentioned, it's going to take a number of years and a lot of legislation and a complete shift in the way we think about housing and, and, and also for people out there to maybe come around to thinking about, well, yeah, well, maybe I will rent for the rest of my life and I will have the protections in place. You can't have rental for the rest of your life in, in the present environment because there's too many problems out there with uh, leases and that. So mm. it wouldn't work currently. But a radical rethink, I think, is it needs to be looked at. Uh, I don't understand the next question, but maybe you can. I'm in my late 50s and I understand that there's a life assurance policy that could help with inheritance tax on my death. Is this something that I should consider taking out? Why would one worry about inheritance tax when they pass away? Well, you've got a situation now where if you're in um, from um, parent to child, you have a threshold of 335,000. 
So if the estate per um, child is, ahead, is above that, you're going to, they're going to pay inheritance tax on the balance. So it is a very kind of, I suppose, apt and common question. So if you have, say, a property worth five, six hundred thousand, and you want you you one child, that person when they die, your 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 son or daughter is going to pay um, inheritance tax on the balance over three hundred thirty-five thousand, which means that they may have to sell that property if they don't have the resources to pay it or be able to borrow it. Mm-hmm. So you, one way, one of the way around, one of the ways around it is that somebody takes out a life insurance policy to cover that tax element that uh, their child may have to pay. But obviously that comes at a cost and the older you are with life cover, the more expensive it's going to be. And that person is in their late 50s. So, you know, they'd want to be careful about what the cost would be as opposed to the benefit um, because of the, the stage of life that they're at. That's assuming that they're in good health. Who dreams up these policies so that you take out an insurance policy <laughs> for when you die, when you're laid to rest by or, or wherever you end up, uh, uh, to, to look after what's left behind? Go away with you. Spend it like you're well, doing in advance. Leave nothing well, behind. I, <laughs> well, you know, you know my thinking on that anyway, which is basically, you know, you know, go off and enjoy life. You've done your best for your kids. You know, I wouldn't be overly concerned about that, but it depends on the individual. Okay, we'll get your family on the line next. Don't you go there. Just hang on there. We'll get, we, we get Richie up there now straight away. Richie, how do you feel about him spending your inheritance? Uh, Dave McCarthy, thank you indeed for joining us. McCarthy and Associates in Mudkey on 0915660022. Inheriting, sorry, taking out a life insurance policy that will help with inheritance tax on my death. Is this something I should consider taking out? Harry lads. You're going cracked altogether in this country. Really, truly. Hi Keith, this caller said, could you highlight on your show for delivery drivers to please close the gates after them? Yesterday somebody dropped off a parcel and never closed the gate after them. We have a young grandchild that we look after and if he got out it would not have been good, this caller said. So I suppose leave it as you find it. If the gate is closed, would you leave it uh, closed please from there? Dear Keith, I see people parking outside the new coach station uh, all day for free. They just park up and walk away and when you're trying to drop off or pick up someone, there's nowhere to stop. Are the traffic boardings not working because of COVID? Also, cars turning right at the courthouse and signs up. Uh, buses only, no law and order in this city, this caller said. Another caller said, could you please ask Ali when doing the sports how he thinks the tickets will go for Roscommon in Galway in Hyde Park on Sunday week? Uh, we'll put that to him in a couple of minutes' time. Uh, Keith, uh, you were talking about skateboards yesterday. Uh, we narrowly missed a skateboard last night on the promenade. You might ask the young people just to be cautious of us people out for a walk with young children. And uh, Keith, I just uh, heard that the bishop is retiring. Well, not yet. Bishop Brendan Kelly is not, not yet, but he will be uh, retiring when it's accepted uh, from there. Uh, but I want to wish him well. Uh, from there, this uh, caller said. And uh, Keith, this uh, caller said, can you tell me what's the threshold from a grandparent to a grandchild? Uh, we'll get back on to Dave and we'll figure that one out so we will from there. Uh, Keith, who's going to be able to afford the retrofit of homes? Uh, lots of big homes uh, would need major retrofits and that would cost a lot of money. Ali, they're asking me to ask you about sport. Uh, how you think the tickets will go for Roscommon and Galway in Hyde Park? on Sunday week how, how will they go? Well we'll, we'll know more t- tomorrow um, I'll get a bit of info as regards the numbers 
But again, it's the distribution, isn't it? And I suppose what they have been doing up to now where 100 people have been getting in is, you know, they've been largely distributed from what I can see mm. uh, through players' families. Um, you know, and, and that's obviously the priority, which... That puts pressure on them, though, now. It's though. fair enough. It does, but it's like in All-Ireland on a, an extreme level where you're literally only getting a couple of tickets each. And I think for the Roscommon game, there should be a little bit more than that available. But until you get exact numbers... And I suppose, look, it is a kind of council fixture. So ultimately, I suppose we need to get the information from them as regards the exact numbers allocated to each county. And then from the county perspective, okay, what are you going to do with your X number of tickets? Are they going to be available in any way, shape or form to the general public? Are they distributed via the players, via the clubs? All of those type of questions, because I'm sure there will be huge anxiety for people to try and get a chance to go and see a live inter-county fixture for the first time. Uh, in well over a year so it's going to be exciting it will be exciting for those mm-hmm. who get to go it'll be disappointing for a lot more but then again I suppose so many of us are used now to just seeing matches either on a live stream or on TV and uh, it'll probably continue that way until the autumn mm-hmm. when we will probably get back when it comes to the conclusion of the Inter-County Championships I think if you get to an All-Ireland Final there's a good chance you'll have 20,000 people plus in Croke Park mm-hmm. and that's you know, provided everything goes to plan, there's no it's guarantee that a quarter of the capacity, though. Less than a quarter of the capacity. But it's fine. It's yeah. 20,000 more than would have gone it'll last put, year. It'll put atmosphere into it, yeah. That's the whole point. So uh, we'll talk more about that tomorrow when, when we have a bit more information. Really, it's all about last night, and I thought when you were teeing me up about you're getting a few texts in, it would have been about the refereeing of the Galway-Dublin match last night. And we're only going by, uh, for me, listening to the commentary, uh, seeing the pictures... There's nobody complaining from a Galway perspective. Uh, Jeff Linsky isn't like that. But I think anybody looking at it, there was a couple of key decisions, especially later on in the game, that cost Galway the match. Now, mm. overall, I don't know, could anybody have any real complaints that Dublin didn't deserve to win? But parking that for a moment, you're still in the game, you're level with a couple of minutes to go, and Dublin get a couple of really, really handy frees, and Galway are denied a couple of blatant frees and a blatant penalty. So, look at, I don't think we're going to be crying too much because, no, as I said this it cl- morning, it closes that down. a lot of these young lads yeah. have a lot of success at underage. But again, there's you know some that haven't. And the reality is that, you know, had things gone slightly differently in terms of a refereeing performance, then Galway could have eked out, even if it was, uh, you know, somewhat fortuitous. They could certainly have won that game last mm. night with a couple of very obvious decisions going their way, which should have gone their way. Be that as it may, Dublin won it. Good luck to them. 120 to 118. They've never won an under 20. And uh, they'll go and try and beat Cork in two weeks' time to win it now. Um, but there's a lot of um, the great future for the team. As oh, it's no doubt. You know, great I mean, and look, let's look, be it's fair. One, it's one game, one game. You're not going to get too excited or, or critical over a gang of lads coming back playing their first match in six months oh. since their last match. No. And they're a credit the fact that they could go out there yesterday evening and put on such a performance. And so too to the dubs. Yeah. Like, they're, they're an amazing bunch of young fellas that they could keep that Absolutely. focused and be able to do what they did. What else happened in Gaelic Games that we missed last night? Um, I suppose there is under-19 championship action going on as well. So that's another age group um, in football last night. There was mm. quite a number of club games played around the county. And towards the weekend, there's load more games. So there's a combination now of tidying up on some of last year's championships like the junior championship last weekend we saw uh, Barna beat Toome Stars there's a couple of junior hurling finals this weekend and slowly but surely you'll see 
um, a couple of the crucial games like the senior relegation matches coming back into the fore in the next couple of weeks before the draws will then take place for the 2021 championships. Mm. So in other words, your point being that the, the club is very definitely now eking into the consciousness and it's becoming more prevalent every weekend. But you talk about prevalent weekends. Uh, this weekend it'll be pretty quiet on the GA front for Galway teams. Not so the following weekend because from tomorrow night week on it's going to be Helter Skelter. Crazy weekend okay. with uh, four Galway teams in action. Come here to me. We look at soccer. Yeah, last night was a funny night. I mean, great drama yeah. with France drawing two all with Portugal, Germany drawing two all with Hungary. And at any one given point in the night, uh, all four teams were finding themselves in different positions on the table. At one point, Hungary were in when they were leading Germany and then they were gone. Uh, Portugal were gone and suddenly they were back in after drawing with France. The Germans, though, most dramatic of all, they looked... Auf Wiedersehen, until uh, Leon Goretzka fired in the equaliser against Hungary. Oh, you have to say, Ireland played out a nil-all draw with Hungary in Budapest, and it mm. was just, you know, it wasn't great. But Hungary had been excellent in this yeah. tournament. So maybe there's a pointer there to say that it doesn't take an awful lot for Ireland to, you know, bump up their level yeah. and, and be more than respectable at international level. Look, at the bottom line is here, it's England and Germany next Tuesday. The old rivals, 1966 all over again. Euro 96 all over again and the sad thing is if Ireland had held on to their Euro 2020 yeah. matches it would be in Dublin it's not no. but I'm just saying it could mm. have been ok well could have should have would have next, next time round hopefully golf wise how, how uh, Pori Carrington Paul Dunn Niall Kearney they're all playing in the BMW International Open in Munich at the moment uh, Seamus Power he's the only Irish golfer in action at the Travellers Championship in Connecticut tonight Leona Maguire plays in the US PGA Championship uh, but most important of all tonight, Adam Hessian is going for gold in the boxing. Good. The Monavea man is competing in the bantamweight final in the European Under-22 Championships in Italy. Uh, we wish him well. And it's cross-channel racing in Newcastle, Nottingham and Leicester. Wonderful. Thank you. Sport on the hour every hour with Ollie and the team here. And thanks for joining us. A very good morning to you now. The combat lines are open if you want to get through to us uh, today. Once upon a time, the word Delta meant a fellow was taking a flight on a Delta Airlines. Now Delta is the um, new variant, indeed, of uh, the coronavirus that we're all concerned about. Let me go to Professor Martin Cormican, who joins me on the line, kindly giving us his time uh, this morning. Professor Cormican, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, this Delta virus, uh, variant of the virus, by the way, how is it so different, can I ask you, to the other variants? Well, um, I suppose the first thing to say is it's the nature of these things, that the viruses, that they do change. And it's, it's true, not just of we're focused on this particular virus at the moment, but the flu virus and all the other viruses, they yeah. all change um, all the time. Um, and obviously, as I said, because of the pandemic, we're very focused on this one. Um, and they, they, every time the virus copies it, itself, copies its genes, there's a chance that there will be a mistake in the copy most of the mistakes make the virus weaker and occasionally you get one that makes it work better, that makes it maybe spread faster or, and, and that seems to be what's happened here. Um, it, there's a change in so the, the, there's a change in the virus behaviour. It seems to spread more easily um, and it, the, the vaccine was made against the original virus um, and doesn't fit quite as well with the Delta um, variant as it did, you know, against the original virus that it was made for, but it does fit pretty well, and and so 
the, the key thing about the Delta is that with all of the worry about it is that it spreads more or less in the same way as the, this virus has been spreading all along. It does it a bit better, but it, it pretty, pretty much spreads the same thing. You get it from people who are infected the same as you did with all the other variants. And the other thing is that the vaccine works very well. It, it may not work quite as well as it did against the, you know, the previous ones, but it still works very well. And the vast majority of people who completed their vaccination, even if they get Delta, are not going to end up in, in hospital or ICU. So, you know, the vaccine will still offer you a lot of protection, even though it may be not quite as good as it was against the earlier versions of the virus. Well, you see, I think that's the first bit of, bit of positivity I've heard in a few days because what you're saying is, is quite positive. We still need to mind ourselves. Uh, we still need to be cautious. We still need to hand sanitize. We still need just to mind ourselves indeed from there. Uh, but if people yeah. follow the guidelines that they have been doing for a year and a half, but then I think maybe politically, and I'm not pulling you into this, this is being driven because politically we wake this morning think, uh, with with news uh, that they may not be able to open the restaurants and bars as they wanted to on on the fifth of July. They may not just be able to do so. But I mean that that's going to be between Neffet and the government from there. Well, I, I think it, it one of the things that we don't know yet, and that we have to very keep a very close eye on is is not just how much the virus spread, but also how much harm it does. Mm. And a lot of that harm is going to depend on, on who gets it and whether they've been vaccinated or not. And we need to keep a very close eye on what's happening around hospitalisation and, and ICU demand. It, it's not, the virus only matters because it, because it harms people. Um, and so it's, we have to keep a very good idea, view on what happens to the, what happens to the harm over the next couple of weeks. And I think this will be a big uh, issue when Neffet is looking at this next week will be not just the number of cases, but, but what's happening to hospitalisation and ICU. Now, I think there's very little doubt from most people in this that Delta will probably be the main virus that we're looking at in, in the country within a, a space of time. And again, that's not peculiar to this virus. That's actually, that's what viruses do with when they change and one develops that that spreads a bit better, that one tends to take over. We've seen that happen before with, with other viruses. But always we need to be keeping our focus on is is how much harm is it doing to, to people and, and that's why the hospitalization and the ICU is so critical and why the you know, what you emphasize there is that people should still take reasonable precautions, um, follow the public health guidance and, and above all else as soon as you're eligible for vaccination, get the vaccine. It's still your best bet. And even though it's a, the, the Delta might be a little bit better at dodging the vaccine, it, it, it is, looks like it is a little bit better at do, dodging the vaccine. It's not that it can dodge it completely. It, it's just a little bit better at dodging the vaccine. The vaccine still keeps the vast majority of people who get Delta out of hospital and keeps them out of ICU. Isn't science absolutely wonderful when you're talking about a virus dodging the vaccine. I think of a kid maybe going down the road on a bicycle and, and avoiding danger all the way. It, isn't it just amazing how science works and how you can track it like that? It's it's a way of I suppose, talking about it. The, the virus, of course, as you, as you said, isn't like the kid who's who's thinking. The virus is just. Uh, I, I think the virus is a, a sort of it's a force of nature. It, it just this is how nature works. Is that when you. 
it, it, you know, when you close off one pathway for living things, they, they try to come through the cracks. And as we all get vaccinated, um, that, that makes the world a harder place for the old type of virus. Yeah. And, and, and then makes it an easier place for the new kind of virus, which, which tends to, to take over. It, you know, so it, it, the science of it is very interesting, um, uh, although I think most of us could have done with a lot less of this interest over the last year because of the yeah. price we paid for it and paid by people in their lives. Absolutely. But the science is also our best way to handle it. And, you know, evidence is not perfect and even using evidence we all make mistakes in the judgments that we we make but you'll you'll be right a lot more of the time than you're wrong if you base the judgment on the evidence and the science can i ask you just in relation to vaccines then and maybe i'm stepping outside your field from there but just if i am you can correct me back and pull me back but just we, we we've heard from people who've had the astrazeneca um vaccine now and i'm one of those so i'm waiting for dose number two to come down the line whenever uh, but certainly those after astrazeneca then certainly in galway they went into the moderna phase and uh, people got who got the first phase of moderna got on very well but a few people within the building here and elsewhere that got the second dose of Moderna, it knocked them for a day or two. Yeah, it does look like uh, there's a, that some people get, with the RNA vaccines, a lot of people would say that they had, if, if they had got knocked back, they got knocked back on the second dose. And a lot of people, on the other hand, would say that it was the first dose of AstraZeneca that caused them the, the, the most side effects. So these are usually fairly mild side effects. They're caused, in a sense, because your immune system, your immune system is reacting to the vaccine, which which it needs to do, because the, the vaccine is is like a, a little taste of the virus or a little piece of the virus, and it's there for your immune system to practice on. So your immune system sees this thing and it's it practices on it, by, and that helps you to make the preparations, the cells and the antibodies, to be ready if you ever meet the real thing. Because the immune system is is practicing uh, and and is is fired up, you feel a bit like you would feel if you had a real infection. It's yeah. not a real infection, but but your immune system is reacting as if it was, and that makes you feel a bit unwell. And and so that's quite common. So in some respects, it, it it's not to be surprised at that that feeling because, as I say, what we're trying to do with the vaccine, in a sense, is to trick your immune system into thinking that the virus is there. So that it gets ready to fight the virus if the virus ever turns up. So it does happen. It's a it's a, it's a consequence of the vaccine. It's the price you pay for, in a way, the price you pay for prodding your immune system and saying you need to be ready to deal with this. Your immune system does deal with it, and it makes you feel a bit unwell for a couple of days. Uh, I think it was you that said it in one of the early days when we were talking about vaccine. And uh, that effectively the, the first um, dose of vaccine kind of tickles the system and gets it teed up. And the second um, vaccination, when you get it, kind of comes in and it's the killer blow um, for the virus and that one for your immune system. So, I mean, it's 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 working. And like when, you're, when I was reading last night, like four million doses of the vaccine have been administered in the country. Um, you know, that that's a lot of vaccine. It is a lot of vaccine, and I suppose the other thing is who it's been given to, because obviously the target was to give it to the people who are most at risk. So the vast majority of people who are at most at risk, older people, um, uh, frontline uh, healthcare workers, have now been vaccine, vaccinated. And, and the vaccine uptake in Ireland has been tremendous. I think 
it's a vast, you know, you're, you're looking at it's, it's when you get to the age group and um, there's a huge enthusiasm for the vaccine and you can see the benefits in, in terms of the, in a recent, uh, one of some of the very recent figures, for example, only 2% of the cases were in people over 65. Good. And that's such a transformation from where we were earlier this year when we were looking at, at critical illness and indeed deaths in, 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 in people uh, um, in that age cohort, yeah. In older age group. So the, yeah. the effect of the vaccine has been dramatic um, and the uptake has been tremendous. And as you said, it, 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 the second dose is really important because as, if you've got some antibodies, it protects you reasonably well. But with, with the Delta variant, one of the things that the science shows is that the antibody that you get from the vaccine doesn't fit quite as tightly to the Delta virus as it did to the old one. Mm. But if you got a ton of antibody because you got your second dose, you've still got so much antibody that you've got enough for it to work in the vast majority of people. So the variants make it even more important that you go for your second dose when you get called. Okay. Um, somebody said um, the Janssen and Janssen is... is does, does uh, Professor Cormac go down to about the Janssen and Janssen? But there's, uh, how many have we now? Have we five or six at this stage? Well, there's four in use. At the, uh, it, it, there are four available for use in Ireland at the moment, but there are more uh, coming. The Janssen was, um, was used as a single uh, dose vaccine and has been used in, in, um, it has been used in Ireland. It's a smaller number of the vaccines that we've been using so far, but it has been, uh, it has been used. And again, the, the, any, all of the vaccines that are in use have been studied and are effective. Um, for those vaccines where there's a second dose is required, then it is really important to get that second dose, as you said, to give that that, that Kill, killer blow there. Yeah, to get, to that extra load of antibody. Can so I just Janssen is a single dose vaccine. That's what it's licensed for. Okay, just to read you one comment, and then I'm going to let you back into your into, into work again. Uh, Heike, I heard you saying that science is amazing and correctly so, but let's not forget that science has got us into this mess in the first place. It's now common knowledge that the virus was engineered and manipulated in a lab in Wuhan uh, through gain-of-function f- research, which is extremely dangerous. This probably won't be read out as it does not want um, the mainstream media uh, does not want us to hear such things. Anyway, it's a great show, and I hope that you're all well. And um, have we ever determined the WHO didn't close out on it yet? And uh, do we know where this came from? No, it didn't. Um, I think they, they. I think it's probably fair to say, if the person texted into you, that the, the the ground has shifted in that, in terms of that we've learned more about the work that was going on in 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 the research laboratory in uh, in in Wuhan in China. Um, and it, it certainly the indications are that they were doing work as your uh, as the person texted in, into you about gain of function. So we d- we don't know where it came from exactly. Um, uh, and um, and I, I think we would all like to we we would all like to know more about that. I, I suppose. Um, but whether we ever will get a definitive answer, I, I don't know. But I, I think it's certainly there is. That, that question is there. It is an open question. There's, um, there's, we've learned a lot more about the work that was happening in that laboratory, and I would say that there's globally, I would say probably more concern about that now than there was some months ago. But, um, uh, but still, a lot of uncertainty. Can I ask you what is gain of function research? Um, so 
this was the, the work. Some of the work that they were doing was that they were they were looking at if you modified the virus uh, to see how it would behave. Um, did, did you change the function of the virus to see if if you change the virus in this way, would that make it better at infecting human cells? Was one of the questions they were they were asking. Now, when people do that kind of research, just to be clear, it, it, what they're often trying to do is understand. Mm. potential future risk it's not that there's it there is a risk associated with the work of us but but it's not to say that the people who do gain a function work it's not that they're out to do bad things what they're doing is is trying to understand what would be the risk if the virus naturally changed in this way so there's no and and that work is associated with some risk but there's no suggestion that i have seen and certainly i'm not suggesting that anyone who does gain a function research is is out to do something bad they're out to improve understanding but obviously the suggestion is, is that if you do that and if it works and if the virus escapes there's a risk associated with that we don't know that that's happened no. but that's one of the things that that's one of the questions that's being asked so effectively then can i do in, in my own little head so they were they were modeling they were perhaps modeling with uh, with a virus indeed with the view to figuring out if it did happen and how it transmits and, and how it functions. So they're actually just working on a virus. or That's what gain-of-function is, working um, just in case something happens in yeah, the future. It's a particular way of modifying the virus to see how it behaves differently after you've changed it. Oh, Lord. Let's, let's hope that, that the WHO can clarify that. Uh, Professor Martin Cormack, uh, thank you indeed, and sorry for holding you so long, uh, for joining us uh, today uh, on the programme. I'll never forget what gain of function is again. Comment lines are open if you want to get through to us on 091-770-077-53995 should you want to get uh, in contact with us. Feel free to do so today on the programme. Good morning. You welcome in to today's programme. Kitty Holland, uh, Social Affairs Correspondent with the Irish Times, has a very interesting article in today's Irish Times. People with eating disorders are forced to travel to the UK for treatment, says the judge. Inadequate services for people with eating disorders is causing unnecessary distress and uh, forcing some patients to go to the UK for treatment. The former president of the High Court warned this came from uh, Justice Peter Kelly, former Justice Peter Kelly, uh, who heard that the increasing number of wardship applications concerning people with severe eating disorders during his five-year tenure. He's calling for reform into the 2001 Mental Health Act and increased specialist eating disorder services. Um, he's dead right. That 2001 Act needs to be thrown out the window and started again. Let me go though to Carla Johnson, who joined us a couple of weeks ago from the National Eating Disorders Recovery Centre of Ireland, and she joins me on the line today. Carla, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Thanks for joining us again on the programme. I'm putting myself in the position of the husband, the wife, the father, the mother, the brother, the sister of somebody who has an eating disorder. And like a toothache or like a headache or otherwise, it it is something that needs to be treated. But having to go to England is not right. No, it's not at all. And I mean, especially when there there are some services starting to, like ourselves, um, starting to to, um, establish themselves, you know, we kind of question why are people being sent to the UK? Um, I mean, you know, we've been in contact. We had a meeting with the HSC, the National Clinical Programme for Eating Disorders, back in March. Um, and we've had no more contact from them since. And I mean, since then, we've had our Mental Health Commission inspection where we've been an approved mental health centre. All of our staff 
are are trained up in mantra, family-based treatment, you know, marzipan, junior marzipan, SSCM mantra, all of that kind of thing. And I suppose my, my point would be, this is an, an issue that is not going away. It is increasing. I mean, to be, to tell you the truth, Keith, I have had a parent in the last couple of days of a four-year-old contact me. Um, you know, we a are four-year-old. Four-year-old. So we have a pandemic. We've had a pandemic going on, but this is, as far as 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 you know, myself and my colleagues would say, we are at crisis point here. I mean, families, individuals themselves are being failed. Um, I've been contacted even from, obviously I won't go into cases, but I've been contacted even from Galway Hospital regarding a patient. um, And we had organised to accept the patient and for the patient to come to us. And at the last minute, um, there was an issue with funding and the patient is still stuck in a general ward, in medical ward, in a hospital, which is totally unsatisfactory. Um, and it's, it, it, you know, part of our, from research, part of our ethos would be early intervention. I mean, that's not just us, that's what you research across the world. Early intervention is key. I mean, we are seeing parents coming to us, which is great. They're coming to us with... Um, you know, they're questioning, have my my young person, have they got, a, you know, some kind of disordered eating? And it's great that parents are becoming more aware and are actioning it. And in the long run, what it will actually do is save the HSC, save the government money by actioning things much sooner, much okay. quicker but from you, the community. Are you telling me, without giving me male uh, or female or age or otherwise, so you're telling me that you had come to an agreement, but the person remains in a general hospital bed at a thousand euro a night uh, in new HG because they can't sort out the funding for her to Absolutely. go to you for, for treatment. Yes. yes. I um, feel like um, I feel like hitting my head off the microphone here, but I'm not going to do it to the listener. That is just bizarrely stupid. Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you, Keith, I know the last time we spoke, I was a little bit more reserved, but I'm going to be honest with you. I have a fire in my belly now and it is, uh, you know, I, I I suppose just from speaking with families and the helplessness that people are feeling and all the while people are at home, they're not getting the treatment that they need, they're not getting the treatment that they deserve. People are in general medical wards and don't get me wrong, there is a time, and a, a, you know, when people do need medical intervention. But not for eating disorders, Carl. If I, if, if, look, what no. the limited knowledge that I have of eating disorders is it's a serious condition and it's a serious condition that, that needs specialised treatment in, in that regard. But again, being in a general medical ward uh, for an eating disorder, unless they're being force fed or otherwise to keep them alive, I mean, good Lord, would you give them the dignity that they need and that's exactly the way we feel that, you know, during that time frame, I can tell you because we've actually had calls from people who are on wards with an eating disorder and they're not being tube fed or anything like that. This is from all around the country now. Um, they are not being tube fed, but they are obviously not well enough to go home. Yeah. There is nowhere for them to go according to the hospital. Well, it wouldn't be the the... the the, the staff in the hospital but I mean it comes down to funding again and what we cannot understand is I mean back in 2018 the, the clinical programme 
the HSD National Clinical Programme for Eating Disorders would devise. And I mean, we're all well aware at this stage that, I mean, not a fraction of that has been implemented. But there's a lot of short-sightedness here that people are being admitted to, whether it be psychiatric hospitals where there isn't specialised facilities, um, where they're not receiving the treatment that they need. And as a result, this is going to lengthen their recovery. I mean, because you have to untangle and unwind all of that. I mean, down to the very, what we, you know, somebody without an eating disorder might consider very basic, learning how to eat again, um, you know, sitting down with staff who are trained in um, meal support and things like that which we are, um, you know, that that is what people need. Okay. And families need support. I mean, there are families who, I mean, it's heartbreaking, to be honest, Keith, and I, I, I'm not sure that we can stand by any longer and just see that this is, is continuing. No. And I mean, as that article points out there, there's people have gotten to such a poor state of ill health that they need to go to the UK for treatment because there isn't, the appropriate treatment here for them. But has intervention happened sooner with the appropriate treatment and also for with the appropriate length of time? You can't put a, a time frame on this. There's, you know, I know we've been asked, our, our residential programme, we say is a minimum of 12 weeks. And when people hear that first, they kind of go, oh my God, like 12 weeks, that's three months, you know, in a facility. The reality is there's people who have been living for so long with this eating disorder that 12 weeks is only a drop in the ocean compared to what they actually need, you know, and it can't just stop at, you know, somebody comes into residential treatment and that's not it. That's it. Sorry, that's not it. I mean, there's a mountain of work to be done. Where, yeah. if, if somebody is affected by what we're talking about, uh, Carla, it's funny, where would you, where would you point them? In, would we point them in the direction of the National Eating Disorder Recovery Centre? Yes. Um, GP. I, I the, the first the first point to call would always be the GP. Um, and I know what we what we are hoping to do uh, sooner rather than later is to organise training free of charge for GPs to be able to come and to recognise. I mean, we already have people who come up and um, come in to us and they'll say, well, I went to my GP and because my BMI was within normal range. My GP didn't think that I really needed, you know, they told me to just go home and eat three meals, three snacks, you know, and, you know, watch okay, but you're, 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 you're going to retrain them from there. I wish I had loads, yeah. more, I wish I had loads more time to talk about this because I'm, I'm frustrated beyond belief yeah. uh, today. And it's not just young people as well. I came across a friend who's same age as me, 59 years of age, and he's had an eating disorder for 20 odd years. So it's not just young people, but it's people of all ages. Carla, thanks for joining us. We'll come back to you again in, in a couple of uh, weeks' time. But Carla Johnson joining us there from the National Eating Disorder Recovery Centre in Ireland. It's just shocking. It really is just, just shocking. Connacht Tribune headlines next. Now, good morning. She welcome in to today's uh, programme. Dave O'Connell joins me with today's uh, Connacht Tribune headlines. Dave, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us. The Apple Data Centre for Athenry back in the news today and on the front page. Delighted I was to see this. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure some will and some won't, but it's an interesting little nugget that we dug out because Apple Operations Europe has applied to Galway County Council for, excuse me, more time to construct 
a controversial data centre at Derry Donald. This is, as you know, <coughs> the site they were given plan information for back uh, in 2015 for the 850 million euro facility. Now, to be clear, this isn't another planning application, at least not yet. It's really more that the process doesn't lapse and it's keeping uh, their options open on this. But it will obviously spark hopes that we will see a revival of the project equally it may spark fresh objections on it. But as I say, it's a holding position, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Now, the confusion over outdoor drinking gets two pages within uh, today's Connick Tribune. Yeah, it does. And confusion is where it's at. As you know, the the City Tribune uh, broke this story last Friday and it took off like a rocket, but we're no closer to a definitive solution. I suppose the government's position might be best described as see, can you sort itself out, lads, if it sorts itself out. And uh, I suppose it will to an extent if and when the indoor opening comes back on all of this. But what was interesting from this week's uh, meeting of the Joint Policing Committee is that Senior Gardaí told City Council Executive uh, well in advance of reopening that this was a problem and then this was never made uh, known to the elected members. But in the meantime, the outdoor facilities do remain in operation. But it's a very grey area where I suppose what we need is something either black or white. Now you have a story of a Galway woman from more and more indeed who went away on the holiday of a lifetime only for it to end in her worst nightmare and she's trying to raise funds. Yeah, she is Julia McAndrew, be well known through um, her many business incarnations as you say, she's from more and more and she took off on a dream holiday with her daughter to spend uh, Christmas in Mexico with her son only to become suddenly and seriously ill and now she's too weak to return home after being diagnosed with advanced cancer which was returned to her. So uh, the family are trying to see can she be built up by uh, the hospital system out there to a point where she can endure this long flight home. Uh, They're fundraising to pay the €33,000 a month cost of her ongoing treatment on that and they uh, established a GoFundMe page set a target of 280000 on that. Uh, in less than a week, they've raised over 36000 It is a heartbreaking story, and uh, it's in full in the paper today. And what else have you got, Dave, for us today? Uh, loads. Um, we have uh, a preview uh, of Galway's first-ever softball league. That starts next week on the grounds of St. Mary's. Uh, a piece also on how a growing number of uh, members of the traveller community are embracing third-level education. Uh, lovely picks from Bonmore National School, where they're enjoying what we all should have, a fortnight of fun. Uh, coverage from the phenomenal achievement, as the only way I can describe it, of eight Galway cyclists who pedalled from Mizzenhead to Malinhead in 36 minutes less than their 24-hour target, and all for hand-in-hand, the uh, children's charity for whom they've already raised thousands with more rolling in. And Frank Farragher has a lovely piece on Ballyglunan man Paddy Finn, who has served as Sir Kristen in the Brooklaw Church since August 1983, and he was honoured last weekend by the Pope with the papal uh, Benny Merrand, if I get it right, Merrand Etty medal. I could be wrong on that, but it's a medal from the Pope. Well, we'll take that any day, so we will. Dave, thanks for joining us today on the programme, and loads more within today's Connick Tribune, out since early morning, and uh, loads loads more within. Lovely pick on the front, too. I was going to say the Tribune has gone to the boards today, but there's a board on the front page. Feathered one, please. Don't be think, thinking like that at all. Gardening advice with MacDee's Loch Ray and Galway Irish Crystal. MacDee's now have an ample supply of compost, feed weed and moss killer in stock. MacDee's.ie Now let's go to Mick Yuna joins me on the line and good morning to you. 
Morning, Keith. How are you doing? We're good. We have a good few questions good, in good. today, so we do. And Brilliant. again, some of them you can answer and some of them you can't. Good morning, Anne. Could you please advise me as to why every summer my sweet pea grows extremely well, but unfortunately it never flowers. I pinched the top of it, as suggested, but sadly still no flowers. So what am I doing wrong? Yet all the other plants nearby flowers uh, with no problem. Uh, appreciate your advice and look forward to you letting me know what's going on. Well, if it happens every year, it's probably um, a condition of the soil, more than likely, because, I mean, maybe once in a blue moon you might get a bad batch that just might not flower, they might be blind, but that wouldn't be an annual, that wouldn't be a thing that would be happening every year. You, you couldn't get bad batches all the time. So uh, I would suggest that possibly you're not feeding it enough. So something with, like, um, in the before you plant the sweet pea at all, in the spring, I would fork in some sulfate of potash into the soil, some powdered sulfate of potash, and then I would feed your sweet pea every two weeks with liquid tomato food as they're growing. But the, the potash won't promote leaf growth, it'll promote flower growth, which is what you want. Okay. So sulfate of potash prior to planting, and then liquid tomato food, which is high in potash also, um, to feed them throughout the growing season and hopefully that will solve your problem. Uh, please help Anne. A red robin shrub down for years, still three foot high. and uh, Tried many things. Will I give up? And many thanks, uh, the scholar said. No, I wouldn't give up yet. Um, it, it's not that tall. So what I would do, it may be a soil issue as well. The soil may be too compact and too hard. So what I would do is, if you can in springtime, if it's in a position that it's possible to work with, then lift it up, not in springtime, in autumn time, October to March, right through the winter sometime. If you lift it out of the ground, out of the position it's in, take out some of the soil, get a bit of fresh topsoil and some compost, some pot, seed and potting compost, John Innes compost, something like that, and dig it through the, the bed. Even if you were to get a little bit of seaweed from the shore and put it at the bottom of the planting hole, cover it over with soil and then put it, your, your plant back in. But the soil might be too compact and that may be why it's not growing. Now also, it doesn't like too windy a position. So if it's in a very windy aspect, you're, you're not going to win at all. So you'd want to have it in a shaded or a sheltered spot to start with. But if it is sheltered, I would uh, remedy the soil issue and that should solve it. Uh, what is the reason for leaves of plants turning brown after feeding and watering in spring? Um, well, wind is the biggest problem with them. Um, if we get a cold wind, we had a shocking, shocking cold winds over April and May, particularly at night where you'd even wake up to frost in the morning and you had a cold wind at night. And that wind will actually burn the plants, particularly those in facing in certain directions. Some may not be disturbed at all and others may get very burnt. Hydrangeas would be a prime example of, of plants that got very burnt this year. So wind is, is, is a big issue. Also, check with the fertilizer you're putting on that it's okay to put it on as a foliar feed. In other words, is it okay to put it on the foliage? Because you may be burning it with feeding. You may, you may have to put the fertilizer or the, the feed and the soil around the base of the plant rather than on the foliage. So make sure it's a, fo it's a foliar feed you're getting if you're putting it on the leaves because that will burn.
Okay, and just that should solve that. That solve that. Uh, hi, Anne. I have a question uh, for you. Uh, my husband put too much special on the grass and it's growing too fast. Uh, it's um, long a lot of the time. He spends every third night out just trying to keep it in some sort of order. Our neighbour has goats and has offered to lend us one to help with this. But would it be appropriate to put a, a goat on a lawn or with the feet ruin it or a goat's light on their feet? Thank you, Anne. And uh, sorry for the question. No, no. Uh, goats are fairly light on their feet, but if the ground is soft, it's not a very good idea. And the problem with goats is if they if they get out of their bindings, if they get out of where they're 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 tethered, they will eat everything in sight. So you may not just lose your lawn; you may lose some shrubbery as well. So I would think twice about that. And um, I think really what you have to do is for this year suffer with the the trimming and the cutting and so on. And as the fertilizer depletes in the soil, the growth will reduce and eventually you will have a much lower lawn, a lower and slower growing lawn. And then next year you can either not feed at all or feed with something with little or no nitrogen in it. Something with like an O1020 or an O730 that have no nitrogen at all, but would just give good root growth. Okay. But I think twice about the growth. Um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be with you on that. Be careful what you bring in. If the goat gets the the, the the sweetness of the grass, he might come in anyway again. Another well, that's said, the problem. And they, they eat everything in sight. They, they just eat it to the boat. They'd ruin yeah. it. Uh, hi, Anne. This, could you ask the lady how to get rid of moss in your garden, please? Okay, well, we have times. two. Yeah. We have, but yeah, but sometimes people miss it and it is, a, it is, a, it is a, um, a common problem. Now, if you're talking about moss in the lawn, option one, scarify the lawn which is a machine that you can hire or buy, um, but hiring is, is, is grand for most people. And it tears the moss out of the lawn, leaves the grass. If there's an awful lot of moss, you may have to re- when that goes, you may have to reseed some of the bare patches. That might, might be necessary. If you don't want to scarify, and scarifying is a very hard physical job, if you don't want to scarify, then what I would do is uh, use something like lawn gold, which feeds the lawn and kills the moss, but it doesn't turn it black like sulfate of iron would. It, it just turns it to dust and it goes back into the ground. It's organic, safe around pets, safe around humans. So that's lawn gold. Sulfate of iron, as I just mentioned, is also a very good option, but it turns the lawn, sulf, uh, turns it soot black for uh, a few weeks and then you rake out the dead moss. So that's scarifying sulfate of iron, lawn gold. That's three options. But a, a, a three-in-one lawn feed and weed will do the trick as well. Somebody else just said there, um, somebody just said, uh, is after texting in to say that moss doesn't have any root system. Is that true, Anne? It has very little. It, it, it doesn't really have a root, no. It just carpets the ground. Okay. Can you ask, and should I feed a tomato plant and a strawberry plant? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely you should feed them because if you want them to produce fruit, not just foliage, um, you you have to feed them. They have a short life. They do all their growing in, in one season as such. Well, in the tomatoes case, it grow, does all its growing in one season. It goes from seed to plant to fruit to to death, basically, all in one year. It doesn't come back year after year. So if you don't feed it, you're not going to get good fruit. Strawberry, on the other hand, it does come back year in, year out, but again, without uh, feeding and watering, you're not going to get fruits. Something high in sulfate or potash, again, something like the liquid tomato food or something like Nature Safe 
would be perfect. And uh, a bit of sulphate or potash in the soil prior to planting uh, would be a good idea as well. Okay, some other quickfire ones here. And Anne, I collected some seeds from my strawberries as an experiment. They did take, but they did not bear fruit. And might they bear fruit next year or do I need to do something? No, you don't need to do anything. Uh, they, they Do what I said with, with the previous caller. The feeding is absolutely vital. Um, but they may they may be just take they may just take off. It may it may take a year or two for the plant to get established before it bears fruit. I mean, if you went in and bought a strawberry plant in the garden centre, it would bear fruit the first year because it has been growing elsewhere and been grown on in the nursery for a couple of years. So, I mean, if you're only just starting off and you're growing them from seed, it will take a couple of years. But you may not get the same variety of fruit as it came off the parent plant. You may get a smaller fruit, may not be quite as juicy, um, but but you should get fruit of some kind. Okay, so if the thing that they want to get further information, uh, they can uh, just write to Amy and Galway BFM, Sandy Road and Galway. Nope, and they're no co- problem. They're coming in hot and heavy, Anne. Here, so they are red robins. Well, that's that's a good sign. At least oh. we know people are listening. Absolutely, but uh, they're, lo- they're looking. Uh, just one last one here. Somebody just said in relation to, I bought um, a potted Christmas tree, and unfortunately, um, it's it's died. What can I do to it? If it's dead, there's nothing you can do to it, unfortunately. If it dried out when it was in the pot, it will not come back again. It may sprout a little bit, but to be honest with you, you'd grow old waiting for it to to flourish into a new plant. If it is dead, and most definitely dead, so scrape the back of it with your nail or a knife. And if it's green inside, there's still life in it. But if it's brown, it's dead. And if it's brown, discard it. And start okay. again. It's, it's as simple as that. All right, Anne, thanks today for joining us. And McKeown, no you can write to Anne McKeown, Galway, BFM, Sandy Road in Galway, uh, to get further details. And uh, other comments coming into us too, and stuff for Anne as well in relation to uh, the stuff there. And then uh, the caller said, uh, Keith, and we have loads of questions there. Uh, Galway were once again denied a win by the referee last night. It's terrible, Galway, uh, to beat the referee as well as the opposing team to win a match. And um, Keith, could you please ask Dave next time round about home equity and what his thought processes on that are? And another caller said uh, to us uh, today, uh, Keith, 125 people in nursing homes in Galway under 65 as they're not able to live on their own. Contact Galway City Council and Galway County Council and see if they've got money from the government to see if they've got funding to put in a walkway and walk-in showers, etc. in these people's homes instead of having them in nursing homes, this caller said. And uh, other calls coming in there. Is it safe? Enough not to wear masks in the shops. I live in Clifton and people don't seem to be wearing them at all. They should still be wearing them in shops. That's the law of the land, so it is. And uh, Keith, could you do a piece on neighbour harassment? And there's a lot of it going on in my area. And can you do something on it, please? Do you know what you do? Will you just, if that's going on, will you do me a favour? Will you just send an email to kfshow at galwaybfm.ie? That's kfshow at galwaybfm.ie and we'll take it from there. We'll put them together. We'll get the council involved. Both. Mm, Katie has jobs out for us uh, today. Have you much? Yeah, we have a few now. The first one is for ALS Minerals Lock Ray. They're recruiting for fire assay operatives for their weekend shift with an immediate start. You can email your CV to alslockray.jobs at alsglobal.com. They're also looking for general laboratory of operatives for their day, evening, night and weekend shifts with an immediate start. You can go onto their Facebook page for more information. Lockray Auto Parts have a vacancy for a motor parts counter salesperson. Full-time position and salary is negotiable. You can email lockrayautoparts at gmail.com. Nellipack Healthcare Packaging are looking to recruit general operatives. 
must demonstrate initiative, flexibility and ambition to succeed. You can email joanne.jocknessy at nellypack.com. Advent Medical are looking for evening and day shift quality inspectors, as well as warehouse shipping coordinator and a production operator. You can email your CV to careers at adventmedical.com. Fallers Jeweller are looking to hire a full-time jewellery and watch salesperson. They're also looking for a full-time service manager for their repair department. You can forward your CVs to the manager, Fallers Jewellers, Williamsgate Street, Galway, or you can email info at fallers.com. Irish Home Care are currently hiring carers in Toome, Lockray, Ballinasloe and Castlery. You can head over to irishhomecare.ie to apply today. And finally this morning, Aaron Biomedical have the following vacancies. Product Builder, Quality Control Inspector, Quality Engineer, Senior Quality Engineer, Manufacturing Engineer, New Product Introduction Engineer, SNR New Product Introduction Engineer and R&D Program Manager. And you can email hr at biomedical.com. The Galway Bay FM Job Spot in association with TK Car Sales Hedford Road, Galway. A wide range of quality approved cars, Jeeps and commercials for sale. Fully serviced, NCT prepared, with comprehensive warranty, history checks and finance arranged. See tkcars.ie. Very good morning. Welcome on into today's uh, programme. The comment lines are open if you want to get through to us on 0917700077 and 53995 if you want to get in contact with us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you uh, today. Uh, other calls coming into us too today, by the way, just in relation to, yeah, lots of gardening questions. Lots of gardening questions indeed coming in uh, from McEwen. So we'll save them until next week, I promise you, and we'll get to them from there. Some of the other um, questions coming into us uh, today. Uh, Keith, this caller, said, um, I'm having a problem too with rowdy neighbours, this caller said. Um, I live in uh, an okay area. There's no social housing and I still have issues with my neighbours and I think it's appropriate to do whatever they want in their back gardens uh, from there. And uh, and we have no control over it. Um, another caller said, Keith, I got my first dose of um, AstraZeneca a couple of weeks ago and I had absolutely no reaction to it. I wish everyone well getting uh, their vaccination from there. And uh, somebody else just said there on the WhatsApp line as well. Uh, morning, Keith. Uh, I had my first jab in May of the AstraZeneca the day after. I was extremely tired. Then a small rash appeared on my chest uh, over my breastbone. I was told it was uh, most likely due to the vaccine. The paperwork I got did not mention a rash, though. Uh, did any of your listeners have something similar and their similar reaction from there? Hydrocortisone helped clear it. Uh, it's three weeks uh, later it left from there. Uh, Keith, I didn't have any side effects at all after my uh, two doses. I got Moderna. Uh, what does this mean? It means... Thank God you didn't, because some people did. And uh, Keith, recovered. do you know when the age group of 30 to 35 age group can register for vaccination? Please, 35 to 39 group is all I hear about. Uh, I'd say by next Monday, Tuesday, you'll be able to uh, register from there. Anyway, 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 I was uh, reading the Irish Central um, last night indeed, and I saw a note on it, a piece on in relation to um, President Biden announces Claire Cronin as a US ambassador to Ireland and um, again they exclusively reported a month ago uh, irishcentral.com that President Biden was going to announce Claire Cronin as the US ambassador to Ireland and let me go to law lecture and indeed American indeed um, and political pundit uh, Larry Donnelly joins me on the line from uh, NUIG Larry good morning to you thank you for joining us uh, today on the programme um, I just feel I've met Claire Cronin before but do you know Claire Cronin? I don't know Claire personally. 
but I, I know of her. I know of her well because uh, a close friend of mine is uh, legal counsel to the Massachusetts House of Representatives, where Claire Cronin serves as a representative from the town of Easton, Massachusetts, and the city of Brockton, about 25 miles south of Boston. Uh, so a friend of mine is very, very close to uh, Claire Cronin and speaks extremely highly uh, of her and says that we're very, very lucky to be getting her. Again, the first female to become the majority leader of the Massachusetts House of Representatives, um, a key figure in the Biden's Massachusetts primary election. And uh, her, her, to be honest, her biography reads extremely well, Larry. Yeah, she's, I mean, she, you know, look, she, she's a lawyer. She's somebody who's from a political family, but she, she grew up in Brockton, which is a working class city. Uh, she when you went on qualified as a lawyer, practiced law, uh, was active in local Democratic Party politics in uh, that corner uh, of the state, uh, and then you know went on to become uh, state representative and subsequently majority leader, which I think uh, listeners should be aware. You mentioned she's the first majority le- female majority leader of the Massachusetts House of Representatives. Uh, you don't get there without being a tough, skilled, adroit uh, negotiator, uh, mover and shaker, uh, po- political type. Uh, so I have no doubt uh, about her capacity, and I have no doubt that she'll bring uh, a tremendous amount to the role, as well as a very strong uh, affinity for Ireland, which she's already expressed. Yeah, and I, I see that um, I got Kevin O'Malley, indeed, um, the former ambassador, has welcomed her appointment. And I know that he was heavily involved in the Biden campaign and spent quite a bit of time with on the Biden campaign, indeed, with Joe Biden. Um, during the election because I was liaising with them back and forth. So, I mean, he can give her a, a very good briefing of what she can expect in Ireland. Oh, yeah, no no, no question about that. Um, and look, you know, in some sense, uh, it is, from, from my point of view, I think it's actually healthy to see a politician uh, get, this, get this kind of job because uh, in recent years, uh, in re- under recent administrations, Democrat and Republican both, uh, ambassadorships have almost been the preserve uh, of very, very wealthy people, especially people who were even called bundlers, that is, that they bundled uh, amounts of cash. Now, there's no doubt uh, that Claire Cronin uh, helped raise money for Joe Biden, uh, you know, in Massachusetts. Uh, her husband is a very wealthy tech entrepreneur in Boston has done very well, so there, there are circles that she would move in where money would be available, but she is first and foremost a politician. Uh, and I think politicians bring a different uh, skill set to this job, uh, and I think it's one that is going to serve her uh, very well because, look, there's a host of issues here implicating Ireland, implicating uh, the Irish-American relationship, uh, in which I think that uh, you know the Biden administration is keen to take a, take a strong interest and key to play a strong role. Uh, and I think she, her background renders her uh, very well situated uh, to carry that torch for the Biden administration uh, here in Dublin. So, uh, and I have to say, you know, speaking personally, um, it's very, very good to see somebody from Massachusetts back in what we deeply regard in the capital of Irish America as our job. So it's good to see Claire back uh, here. Hopefully she'll be confirmed soon and we'll see her on Irish soil uh, in the coming months. Uh, we'll have to get on to Kevin O'Malley. Maybe you could be appointed a special advisor to her so you y- people from Massachusetts can hang out together then. 
<laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm available. You can tell former Ambassador O'Malley that I'm absolutely available and would love to help any way I could. Yeah, it's, it's funny, but I was liaising back and forth with him. And we would liaise back and forth quite a bit indeed. He's a real gentleman, so he's one of the finest gentlemen to come across. And I mean, he was appointed uh, by the previous uh, administration. Um, and it took a while for President Trump indeed to give us an ambassador here uh, to Ireland. So uh, President Biden has, has moved fairly quickly on this. Yeah, I think it's a, it's indicative. I mean, even for some people, uh, this didn't come soon enough. But look, Joe Biden's had an awful lot on his plate so far. So uh, I think in in that context, I think the announcement is being made uh, quite swiftly. Uh, it'll be interesting to see now whether this uh, announcement is followed at any stage soon by uh, the announcement of a p- potentially a special envoy uh, for Northern Ireland, which there is a good amount of agitation uh, in Irish-American circles, or whether um, the... Uh, President Biden decides that Claire Cronin is well suited uh, to take that mantle as well or to play a part on that front as well. So uh, interesting developments await, but I think that this is uh, a very good signal for all of us who are deeply vested in uh, the relationship between Ireland and the United States. Absolutely. Um, We look forward to meeting with her. And like all ambassadors to Ireland, uh, they do spend some time in the West of Ireland. They tend to fall in love with the West of Ireland. Uh, So we look forward to welcoming her uh, into studio. How long do you think will the ratification take, Larry? It's anybody's guess. Uh, You know, it could be weeks, could be, I suspect, probably months, given all that's going on uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, So, I. You know, it gives us plenty of time to investigate exactly what her Irish connections are. And I should note for listeners that uh, Cronin is actually her uh, her married name, uh, but that her uh, her birth name is McLaughlin and that her mother was a Lucy. Uh, so already speculation as to whether there's potentially some Donegal or some Cork or Kerry uh, in there somewhere. But uh, I'm sure all will be revealed by the genealogists among us uh, in the weeks and months to come. And indeed, I'm sure uh, by the nominee herself. I didn't, uh, I forgot to say it actually during, but it went out of my head, but um, a couple of months ago I was in Mayo just at the opening of the Mayo Hospice and there's a lovely flag, not a flag, but it's a, a paving stone outside the front door of the um, the hospice in Mayo and um, it's dedicated indeed to Joe Biden who turned the sod on it a couple of years ago and to his son and uh, it's, a, it's just a lovely piece and I happened to be talking to Kevin O'Malley indeed the former ambassador and I said to him oh I saw he said did you take a photograph I said he did he said send it to me I'm meeting uh, him in Delaware later on tonight and he'd like to see it and in the middle of the night I got a text back to say he was delighted with the uh, dedication stone just shows how small the world is really it's it certainly is, and it's it's really heartening, uh, you know, in the sense that I think it, it illustrates two of the things I keep saying uh, about Joe Biden. I think that he, you know, at, at, in his heart, I think he treasures um, his family roots, and turning the sod on that in, in Mayo, I think, was something uh, really important to him. We know that he's developed a, a close relationship with the Blewett family, uh, his cousins up there, uh, and I think it also illustrates the fact that you know whether you agree or disagree with his politics. Uh, and, you know, certainly there are listeners who would agree and disagree with lots of what he says. Uh, I think he's a fundamentally decent guy. Uh, and isn't that a pretty radical departure uh, from the president who we had just before him? We leave well enough alone, Lawrence, this morning, so we will. And Larry Donnelly, thank you, the Law Lecture with NUI Goldwyn, political pundit. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the programme. Comment lines are open if you want to get through to us on 091 770 and 53995. Now, we're going to depart from normal programming and we're going to be joined by two gentlemen next. And we're going to tell you a story. And then we'll be telling you about some prizes that were won by some schools in the Tumor area. 
But there's a story within a story about a story, so stay tuned. Now, a very good morning to you. Let me go to Michael Waldron, who joins me from the Tune Tidy Towns uh, Committee, indeed. And uh, I was having... It, what I said to you at the outset is there's a story about a story within a story of a story. And that's what the next uh, few minutes is going to be about. Uh, but Michael joins me on the line because he can tell the story enough of better than I can. Michael, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks, thanks, thanks for joining us uh, today. Um, again, you in February 2020, you applied for a grant for a nature river sign for the, from the local authority and the waters programme there. And what unfolded from there, Michael? Well, uh, we weren't sure how to go about telling the story of the river then, you know, because there's so many aspects to it. There is what grows in it, in the in-stream, there's all the plants that grow on the bank of it and all the plants and all the things that live in the plants on the bank top. And there was such a... How, how to tell the whole story of the river wasn't just apparent, you know. And we investigated, we photographed, we looked at all the different aspects, all the trees and shrubs and everything that would grow around the river and make it uh, a home or a habitat for all the things that live there, mm. the birds and the fish and everything else. And it was, it was, well, it was very hard to tell that in a very simple way that anybody could understand. So I have to admit that uh, it took, about nine months to figure it out, to figure out how to come about it. And we came along and found that the insects that live in the river are central to to everything. And that most people are not aware of it. Even, even the fellows like myself are not quite as aware of just how central they are to the story. You did tell me um, you did tell me a story when I spoke to you last week about this. Uh, whereas when we look into a river, so we have a stream at the back of the house. You look into the stream, and you see all sorts of flora and fauna growing and all of that. And then uh, when the sun shines on it a few months later, it's gone. But you were just telling me the story about the work that's been done behind the scenes. Well, the, these guys they live nearly their entire lives in the bottom of the river. And they're called macroinvertebrates. Now, macroinvertebrates are worms and beetles and all the other things. But we're just talking about a few flies that are you'll find in any part of any river. And they eat all the dying uh, organic matter, all the the end of the the autumn, all the leaves and everything gets washed into the river. And the whole, if you were to see a river in November, the bottom of the river would be absolutely thick mat of leaves and dead matter. And then you come back in the spring and it's all clean as a whistle. And you say, oh, sure. Oh, that was all washed down to the sea. But it wasn't. It was these macroinvertebrates. They eat this. And by doing so, they, they help its decomposition. 
to speed up by a thousand times. And, you know, the following year, say, what, what is washed out of the river, this silt, this water, is, is good food for plants. So, one year follows another. And, and we are so used to this, we take it for granted that uh, what will grow this year will grow again next year. And it's all due to insects. Insects make it happen. And at the same time, those very same insects are the food of fish and of birds and all higher animals that live in a river either eat them directly or are eating something they're eating them. So they all either are directly relying on them or indirectly relying on them. And we, you know, when I was a young lad, you could drink water straight out of a river or a lake because all the insects were there all the time and they had made the water absolutely pristine clean. But over the last 30 years, we have killed over 75% of them. And as a result now, in order to get water drinkable, we have to put it through a very expensive process to kill all the bugs in it. We were actually because we've killed all the insects. Yeah, and we were actually talking about this um, earlier in the week about be careful what you put down on, you know, if you're spraying plants or otherwise, because you don't realise the damage that you're doing. And I thought the story that you said there about uh, stuff being washed out, understanding that stuff has been washed out to see and it hasn't, it's been consumed by these. Uh, and we were, I was reading a book recently by Annie Launa, and she was talking about had a very simple book, but a very beautiful book that she has written. Uh, but she was talking about taking one aspect of life out of the chain and everything else that can fall around it. So it, yes. we, we, we really live in a very fragile community that we take for granted and we abuse. Yes, there, we live... It, the whole of nature is a circular economy. Yeah. Um, we animals breathe in oxygen... You know, and we eat stuff, and that then is broken down by insects and further by microscopic algae and and bacteria, and the result is something that is ready for plants to grow, and then we eat the plants. So, it's a it's a cycle, and we we rely on all the little bits, all the chain links. To make mm. that cycle work, and if you take one link out, then the cycle doesn't work anymore, or not. No, no. doesn't. No, it's a it's a fascinating subject. But let's go back to January twenty twenty one. Then uh, Michael Waldron from the Tum Tidy Towns uh, Committee, you decided the only way to tell the story of the river was and uh, the story of the aquatic insects we're talking about because they're very central to everything that happens on the river habitat, as you said. Uh, but you went about it in a different way, so you did it all together. Yes. Well, we, I could see, uh, say, in America, they have a fantastic understanding of entomology. Entomology is, a, is the science of flies and of insects. Yeah. And and uh, they have. Uh, if if you go into any of the sites over there, you'll get you'll get all the diagrams of of the macroinvertebrates and the flies themselves. 
And there's very little that you can find in Ireland. Biodiversity Ireland seems to be a great spot for collecting information. Not great for giving it out to the general public, all the things. Maybe for bees and things like that, maybe, but I don't know. It's not easy for for a fellow like me to get information off them, no. especially during the pandemic. Pandemic, uh, but yes, there were. You could see photographs there, but getting permission to use them was impossible. So we had to find a new way of getting around, being able to use information, but being able to give it to the public without doing it in a le- illegal way, you know? Yeah. So so we decided the only way you could do that is to get somebody who was an illustrator who could who could draw these, who could draw them, and, and then present them. And uh, Conor Rowan, who was, who is my community officer with Local Authority Walkers Programme, who gave us a grant to do this project, went looking for uh, an illustrator and found Gary Kendallin, who works for Galway Atlanta Aquaria in oh, Galway, yeah, yeah. of course. Oh, yeah, in Salt Hill, yeah. And... And he he came on board, and fair just to him now, he he has a great head in him, you know, and he knows he knew how to digitally. Well, he drew these things first of all, and then he was used able to use a digital thing of layering, so that he could move the those um, drawings around and uh, change their aspect so that we could um, develop the story and uh, show how each of the different aspects uh, of, the, of these macroinvertebrates, where would they be found? Now, yeah, the other thing, uh, problem was we were trying to use one photograph to show all the different aspects of a river. A river is, could be a a pool, mm-hmm. or it could be fast water, or it could be... And we're trying to show... The, the next thing was to try and show perspective. And so his... He showed... It used a, a vertical column of water. And <clears throat> it, you're able to look at, at it from sideways. And then he also used... Uh, a view of what it would be if you were looking from above and looking down through this column of water, you'd see the items and they'd have a shadow. And and then you'd also see the surface. And so by doing that, we were able to show how things were swimming there and other things were on the bottom. And what and what was beneath it uh, from there? Uh, fa- it's the, the graphics are f- quite fascinating. He's very talented, so he is. Uh, is Gary very talented altogether? And that 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 yes. got you through that. So then, take me to um, how you then brought um, uh, Gordon Darcy in uh, on this project as well, because he's on the line with us as well. But tell me, how how did you bring him on board? Well, actually, <laughs> we are. We had started this 
um, I started out with Catherine Seal, who was the community officer with um, Law Pro originally, mm. <clears throat> and this was before the pandemic. This was in in um, it was a few weeks before the pandemic started. The end of twenty nineteen, uh, yeah. And well, no, it was well, yeah, twenty nineteen, twenty nineteen, yeah. and. And um, we were thinking of, the whole idea then was for a sign, which we do intend to install. That is the, that still is the end product, a sign. But, but a sign for where, Michael? Where are you looking at putting the sign? We, are, we want to put this sign on the bank of the, of the river. river Nandy, okay. Um, adjacent to Shop Street Bridge. Okay. Where anybody, any member of the public can go and see it. And it would be a lectern type. So you, even a child can go and see it. So and you decided then the to get, you decided, Michael, to get the schools involved. Well, first of all, we wanted to launch the, the sign online. And we did it by a public Zoom, a, a recording of a public Zoom meeting. And we launched it on the 22nd of May on our own Tidy Town's Facebook uh, page on the day, it, the International Day for Biological Diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then the, the next media thing to do was to have, we printed 200 A0 posters and 200 uh, drawing colouring books. Yeah. And we want to have two different uh, projects. The first one was to have a colouring competition with all the schools in the Tune hinterland. And we sent out emails and told them all about it and then went out to every school and delivered um, copies to 88 class groups. Now, a class has to work together as a team mm-hmm. to colour in a whole book and give it back to us and or take copies of it and keep the book as a resource for the school. Okay, but let's go back to Gordon's involvement then. So you, you took these then and you dispatched them. We did. Now, Gordon is an artist and he has his own colouring books as well. And he has a book called Nurture, which is a 64-page A4 colouring book of nature and art. And this, first of all, is we are going to give this as a prize. This is going to be the prize. Mm-hmm. And also art material to go with it. So the people, the class, the winning classes can make use of it. And how many and how, how many winning classes will you uh, have you got? We have five mainstream classes and three mixed ability. Okay. Will you stay with me because I want to go to Gordon because uh, he joins me on the line today. Gordon, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. How are you? I'm good. Great to talk to you again. And uh, listen, well done to you. Um, you, well, en- you enjoyed this process? Very much. Very, very much. It's uh, great to work with Michael, who's... Uh, as, as you can tell from his uh, in-depth discussion there of the background to the project, that it has many strands. 
um, and I'm delighted to be associated with it. Um, I, I'm, 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 I'm particularly keen on the educational side of things, and when he sent all the books to me to be to be uh, looked at, it was quite a project, uh, quite an undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he described how it was sent out to 88 classes uh, in a dozen or more schools in, in the Tume uh, district, and there were actually 474 individual uh, contributions from from children, uh, and fantastic variety of styles, um, everything from montage and uh, and collage with feathers and uh, uh, stick-ons to uh, work with uh, crayons and and coloured pencils and and um, and markers, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was a big job just uh, going through everything and and uh, trying to sort out the ones that deserved uh, prizes at the end. Um, so um, I've come up with um, eight uh, different schools for prizes here, and uh, I don't know whether I, I should read them out at this stage or not. I go um, on, read, read them out because they'll they'll clock us ticking. Well, so it is okay. here. So let's go with uh, let's go to the, the, the eight schools then. Okay, um, I, I've got um, Belclare National School, third class. Yeah. Uh, Tume uh, Conlis, uh, senior infants. Kilbenon third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, who actually work together as a as a group, a uh, combined group. That's Kilbenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one is Trinity, fifth class. Okay. Corandola senior infants. Yeah. And educate together, uh, fourth and fifth who actually contributed 118 different um, uh, pieces. Wow. And then we have Stepping Stone. uh, 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 And the last one I have here is St. Oliver's. I-V-E-R-S. So you have them all. They're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So you have Sober Clear, uh, Tune Conlitz, uh, Kilbannon, Trinity, Currandola, Educate Together, Stepping Stone, and St. Oliver's. Uh, I, b- I better go back and ask Michael, is he happy? Are you happy with that now, Michael? Did he make the right choice? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to congratulate all the winners, uh, all the kids that are involved. They're all winners, every single one of them. And and I hope that maybe we might have another one again. You know, oh, um, yeah. I'm hoping to ha- have another uh, competition like this in Galway next November. And we might be, I don't know, but we might be able to take part in the Science and Technology um, Festival, yeah. Festival in Galway. That'd be, that'd be nice. I mean, there's lovely people involved in that. Yes. So there is. But again, it just goes back, and I, I'm going to have to close out shortly, but it just goes back to the work, Gordon, that you've done down through the years, Michael, the work that you've done. But look look at the look at the reaction you've gotten, indeed, from 88 classes from 20 national schools, and just look at the quality of stuff, Gordon, that you've judged. Good Lord, the future is good if this continues. Uh, it's, it's very promising and hopeful. There's no doubt about that. Uh, the new generation are so tuned into the environment, and uh, this is a way of doing that in a positive fashion, rather than the uh, often um, pervade doom and gloom um, uh, attitude that a lot of people might have. Absolutely, this is a positive, um, futuristic, 
um, creative creative uh, um, aspect um, involving children. So um, more of this to us. Absolutely. And and again, to Michael, final word to you on this one would be, I mean, I I took it at my age in life, I took it for granted that water flowed and everything happened. Well, we had that uh, conversation on the phone a week or two weeks ago about what goes on in the stream that you've told us today, which is just, you've coupled that with the end of the down a book, and I get, I'm educating myself, but just shows how important it is just to look after our environment. So listen, thank you both for joining us. Uh, Michael Waldron, thank you for joining us. And indeed, Gordon Darcy, talented artist. Indeed, thank you for joining us uh, today. And uh, congratulations to the schools in question. Belle Clare, June Conlitz, Kilbannon, Trinity, Corndola, Educate Together, 4th and 5th Class, Stepping Stone and St. Oliver's. What a lovely story. And we just have to mind what we have, lads. Yeah, lots of comments coming into us uh, today on the programme. And uh, just let me start at the top here. And Keith, great to hear Michael Waldron talking about our river in Tume. He also has a great knowledge of the Tume helicopter. A man of uh, good knowledge, so says Stephen. What's the knowledge of the Tume helicopter? Would you please tell me, if you don't mind? Keith, I'm up here at the race course getting my second jab. We're all standing in the rain and the wind with no shelter. Um, the second the bus, the 401, drops you off on the Parkmore Road, then goes around uh, about the parks up and down, of course. Uh, why don't they stay on if you're getting the jab? Uh, I'm not taking away from the staff up here. They're fantastic in every way. So this is Mark from uh, Ballyban uh, to the programme today. Another caller said, what's the percentage does your son and daughter have to pay on parents' inheritance? Um I think David Carthy said sons and daughters can I think it's 335,000 he said I did have it there I think it's 335,000 he said and then it goes way down then from there and uh, it is 335,000 I'm told uh, zero is an excellent treatment for uh, moss only get in Hawkins just apply and the moss um, dies away and no scarifying this uh, caller said another caller said Keith I have lovely buttercups in my lawn this year and I don't want to cut them. What should I do from there? And uh, Keith, could you please ask the um, city manager why businesses in the city and Saltillo are allowed to partially or fully block footpaths? Huge problem for people with mobility issues. Appears to be a free-for-all with no consideration for the elderly. And uh, this uh, caller said. And another caller said, I went for my second vaccine yesterday. I was asked for my mother's maiden name. What's that for? She's dead for donkey's years. And I was asked, uh, I was not asked the first name. It's just a method that they have for verifying who you are. Just in case there's two of you, perhaps. Uh, Keith, uh, I heard you saying that science is amazing and correctly so. But let's not uh, forget that science got us into this mess in the first place. And uh, we have to remember that, the scholar said. Keith, don't brush under the carpet the issue with people parking at the coach station in Galway. It's just not fair for those of us that have to drop people off on a daily basis. Keith, you were talking about Amazon yesterday. I get my coils from my vape for six euro for a pack of five and they're five euro each here in Ireland. Um, sometimes Amazon, excuse me, is cheaper from there. And uh, Keith, are the people running out of things to give out about again? People were told about the tax and on Prime. And in fairness, it, the shipping is good as well. Uh, I just think people need to stop giving out, this caller said today to the programme. And the telephone line today, you're being active there as well. And um, Keith, it's not Galway BFM's job to sort out neighbours' disputes. 
Oh, right. So I didn't say it was our job. And uh, Keith, could you please highlight the price increase in petrol and diesel? And another caller said, I've gotten phone calls from someone claiming to be from the Department of Social Protection. It's an automated voice. Can you please alert your listeners? This is a scam. Keith, I have a special needs man who's 52. He's been sick for a year after having an operation. He's been in and out of the home. He's in the home now and now he won't talk to me because he thinks I put him in. He's really struggling as he has special needs. They really need to find somewhere for people to uh, recuperate. And well done uh, to Anne Rabbit in that regard, this caller said. And uh, caller said uh, today to the programme, Keith, could you please find out what the situation is with the fair deal uh, as I have applied for it, and but it's taking time to come through. Uh, is, there a, is there a slowdown? Any of my dealings with fair deal, and believe me, I've had many with them for not just family, but for friends and otherwise, uh, they've just been totally impeccable. So maybe just pick up the phone and give them a ring from there and see what the situation is uh, from there. And uh, Keith, uh, this uh, caller said, in relation to uh, what's going on at the race course, just bring an umbrella and be glad that you're getting your vaccination rather than whinging and whining about the 401 that the rest of us have to take just to get to work. So we can't be waiting for ye with vac- vaccines and to get back on the bus again. So there you go. I'm getting it on all sides today and it's not even my fault. For once, for once. Okay, that's it for today. We're back at you live from Studio One for tomorrow's uh, programme, indeed, just after nine o'clock. It's kind of a dull, kind of a misty day. It's supposed to clear in the afternoon about um, two o'clock, indeed, uh, from there. But it's a little overcast here today. I was expecting sunshine throughout the day today when I was um, looking at the forecast last night online. But that's not going to be the case. doesn't matter because we're, we're inside for the day here anyway, so it doesn't really make a difference. That is it for today. We're back to you from Studio One just after nine o'clock uh, tomorrow. If you want to get in contact with us, noisy neighbours or otherwise, kfshow at goldwaybfm.ie. I would suggest, by the way, that those of you that have issues, that you contact the community guard for your area, be it in the city or the county. And if you need assistance on that, the guard station in Galway is on 0915380000 and they can point you in the right direction. Katie produced Siobhan took all of your comments. I'll be joining you live from Studio One tomorrow morning. Have a good and a safe Thursday and we look forward to your company all over again tomorrow. Bye-bye.